Today we have a friend in Canada who is a bus driver, a pilot, and a musical conductor. Please welcome Jerry Murphy. Hello. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Were you actually born in Germany? Yeah, actually, I was uh, born uh, in a little town called Zweibrücken, which uh, I think loosely translates to two bridges. Yep. My father was stationed there. He was with the Canadian Air Force, and uh, he was stationed there. And my mother, um, being of German nationality, and insisted that, uh, of course, that I had to be born in a German hospital, not in the uh, hospital on the airbase, so that way I could have uh, automatically dual citizenship. The life of Murphy began uh, in, in, in an area of Germany, which I guess would be considered the Black Forest region. And uh, did you, your dad meet your mom there then? Yeah, uh, during the, um, uh, just at, after the war, uh, my father was stationed there and um, a lot of German nationals were working on the air base either. My mom worked at the mess hall. And so uh, apparently they, uh, the funny thing was, was that they actually met because they were both waiting for other dates and they, as they were waiting, they began to converse and talk, and eventually they hooked to that whole idea that maybe fate had it for them to, to be meeting as opposed to waiting for the people they were supposed to meet. And what was his uh, like role in the Air Force? My father was an aircraft mechanic. His specialty, uh, of course, at that time was uh, working on the electronic sides of uh, aircraft. Well, in those days, electronics meant vacuum tubes and, you know, the solid state circuitry. But uh, yeah, he was an electronics instrument technician. I mean, the stationing in Germany was because of the Sabre jets that were had been posted there and with the eventually would be the home of the uh, the new Lockheed Starfighters. So he was right on that cutting edge of technology in as much as what the Canadian military had. And uh, do you have any siblings? Yeah, um, I have a brother. He's about 11 years older. And uh, I had a sister. She's no longer with us now. She was about nine years older. So there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a gap. Uh, I, I came along kind of as a little bit of a surprise. And so did you all grow up on the airbase or were you, did you live outside the base? No, uh, actually we lived with my uh, mother's side of the family, my grandmother, my Oma, um, and uh, several uncles and aunts that lived uh, in the town just outside of uh, the airbase. It's interesting that I, I grew up actually uh, speaking German first as my mother tongue uh, and actually having, I went to primary school in German schools. It wasn't until a little bit later, especially with the idea that we would eventually have to move back to Canada with uh, any posting with the Air Force, that uh, it might have been better for me to uh, getting some English background as well. So uh, yeah. my uh, last while now, I think it was the last two years of living there, I started to attend English uh, school on the air base rather than the, the German schools uh, so that I could perfect the English. Uh, our, our family spoke both English and German at home all the time. My mother almost exclusively spoke German at home and my father almost exclusively spoke uh, English, even though both of them were fluent in either language. All three of us grew up with both languages, absolutely fluent in both languages. I don't think a lot of people realize is that if you learn a language before you hit your teenage years, you do not develop an accent in that language. If I speak English, as I'm doing now, of course, you would actually not have any clue that I, I speak German because I have no accent. I do not speak like I have a German accent. <laughs> uh, and it's the same. When I speak German, there is no accent in there either that would make people think, oh, this person's not naturally born uh, German. So... Um, 
Uh, it's too bad it was a little late in, in, in my life, but I could have made a great spy. <laughs> <laughs> a little too late for that. But. Like growing up in Germany afforded me a lot of things to see and do musically that I probably wouldn't have gotten had I was born, raised, and lived in Canada. I got to see a different world and, of course, travel around all of Europe. Every every summer we would have summer holidays and we would travel to Italy, to Spain, to France, Belgium, up to the Netherlands. Uh, at that time, I was just a young child. So I was, I was, I, I didn't come to Canada until I was 12 years old. However, touring Europe as a kid, you don't really appreciate what you're seeing. No. I think I, I remember many times my mom pointing out, look at the beautiful, we're going through Switzerland, look at the beautiful mountains. And I'm saying, I'm bored. Can yeah. we go to a restaurant? When, when do we eat? You know? <laughs> but it was quite exciting as a child to, to go onto a, an Air Force base and see all those big planes and soldiers and things like that. It was. I mean, any time we went, and this, of course, was well back when uh, before there was really a lot of security restrictions. I mean, every time we went on to the base, especially to go shopping, because to go shopping, uh, we would we would shop at the base grocery store. And they had they, I mean, the base, the air bases were very well appointed. By the time I was old, a little older, the posting had been shifted over to a, a base called CFB Baden, Baden Sulligan. At that time, they had actually closed down Swybrooken. I think they gave it to the Americans. The Americans took it over, and we were moved to this air base um, in Baden-Sulligan because of the deployment of the um, F-104 Starfighters. And that was cool. My dad was very proud of working on these aircraft. So a lot of times, we would come onto the base, and while mom and sister would go off shopping, Dad would take my brother and I, and we would go into the hangar, and we would be walking around the hangar, literally could climb right up on this absolutely amazing state-of-the-art fighter jet, and we would be looking over the aircraft. Dad would let me sit in the cockpit seat and, and that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, right from a very young age, surrounded and fascinated by aviation. Both towns that we lived in were right beside the airbase, so you could just walk down the road a little bit and you could stand by the flight line and you can see these jets just whooshing off into whatever uh, flight exercise they were going to do. And they, those days, oh my goodness, uh, they were loud. I mean, uh, F-104 Starfighter with afterburner, you, you, your ears would be ringing after it took off because they were just as loud. And to me, that was cool. I was looking at that going, wow, amazing. It's a wonder <laughs> I didn't go deaf. We used to have a problem with uh, some of the fighter pilots used to be a little bit of um, cowboys, uh, jockeys or that. They, they would zoom low-level strafing over the towns, and they would do it at the speed of sound. The jet would literally pass over your head, absolutely silent. You didn't hear a thing. And then a few seconds later, there would this be uh, this cataclysmic boom, break a few windows, smash a little crockery. And then eventually the, the base commander started putting out edicts saying, no, breaking the sound barrier over town and stuff. So he started playing accordion at a very young age, which is probably a very German thing to do. Yes. What made you want to pick it up? And how did that transition you into becoming a euphonium player with the Air Force volunteer band? Both of my parents actually were not musicians. My father fancied himself an operatic tenor, 
and he would uh, annoy us all the time with his attempts to sing. And my mother, I think she, she could play a little bit, but really had no interest. My grandmother was an accordion player, and she would play at the house. Every time we visited, there wasn't an evening where she wasn't playing something on the accordion. And my grandfather on my father's side actually was a piano player. He earned a living playing the piano during the silent movie era. He would play in the movie theaters. Uh, and that was his job, actually. He, he earned uh, a decent living until some idiot invented talking pictures and put him out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was around four years of age, and um, my grandmother, just every time she played, I would always stand right in front of her and watch what her fingers were doing. And then she would show me how to play a little tune on the piano keyboard portion of the, of the accordion. She would show me, and I would be able to pick it out. Uh, exactly as she showed me. So that's where she said to my uh, my parents that he's obviously got some ability. So they went and bought me one of these little half size, almost like a toy accordion. And my my grandmother would just show me things and I would pick it up. Uh, I, you know, I remember one Christmas I got a, a half size accordion, which at that time I, my nose would just come over top of it as I was holding it. <laughs> but by then I was already able to play quite well a lot of the, um, the folk tunes and folk melodies. I would play along with my, my grandmother. To play the euphonium, to, to jump from that to the euphonium, I actually took a little sidetrack. One day uh, we had gone uh, on a little trip to a town called Triburg which is in the Black Forest region. Now, the claim to fame for Triburg, it is, it is the town in which they have this place called the House of the Thousand Clocks. And it is the cuckoo clock capital of uh, Bavaria. We went, we saw the house with 1,000 clocks in it. And it was amazing. On the hour, you couldn't hear yourself think with all the cuckoos going. But we stopped in at a little restaurant. Uh, they call them Gasthouses in Germany. They're like a little restaurant tavern. And in this restaurant, on, in one little corner of the restaurant, was a small ensemble playing. And they, were, they had a couple zithers, which are like a little auto harp. They're little stringed instruments that are played by hitting with little hammers. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a guitar and a fellow with a little bass, uh, like a, a string bass. But they also had two people that came in from town that were playing alphorns. Have you ever seen those big, long, long horns? Oh, and yeah. they they did a couple numbers in which these two people played a duet on these alphorns along with the group. It I was just fascinated. I must have been about seven or eight years old, maybe. I desperately wanted to try to see if I could make a sound on the alphorn. So my mother went over and asked after they were finished if I could have a look at them. And one of the players very, very kind and said, come on over, give it a try. So I'm sitting here, little little Jerry with this giant alphorn in front of me, and they were showing me how to make the buzz out of the lips and everything like that, and I blew the thing. But as soon as I realized that this is how, you, how it works, I wanted to play a wind instrument. And so my father asked the band director at the uh, on the air base, the station band, because the alpine horn was such a big instrument, I wanted to play the largest instrument in the band, which in the, in the wind band, of course, is the tuba. Of course, they had these giant double B-flat basses, which stood as tall as I was at the time. And so the band director, he said, well, you're a little small to play the tuba for now. But he says, why don't I give you this little, little miniature tuba, which was actually a tenor horn. So a little, little E-flat tenor horn. And he says, you take this home, sign it out. You take it home and you start practicing on that. And that's a little tube. And as you get bigger, 
you know, we'll give you a bigger tuba and a bigger tuba until you can play the full size one. Just before we left, I'd say the last year or two that we were at the at the airbase, I had then played uh, euphonium. And uh, actually, that was the instrument that I was going to stay with. I, I by then had really fallen in love with the euphonium and really thought this is the instrument for me. The volunteer band on the uh, station in, in Baden was actually a German style uh, Bavarian umpa band. When uh, they wore lederhosen, they called themselves the Baden Rube Band. They toured around all over the place playing uh, traditional German Bavarian uh, Oktoberfest music. But we also had a Salvation Army um, group there that had a Salvation Army brass band. And uh, that's the group I played in. You have the youth groups, you have the, the, the youth bands, and then you have the, the adult groups. So, of course, everything ended when my father got notified that the, uh, the, the 104 Starfighter was being replaced by the F-18 Hornet. And his job ended because the F-18 Hornet was all computer circuitry controlled, all microprocessors and microchips, and my father was vacuum tubes and solid state. So he was getting closer to retirement, so it really wasn't worthwhile to retrain him on all the electronic circuitry. So starfighters at that time were being moved to Cold Lake, Alberta, way up in the northern expanses of Alberta. So he was basically instructed that he would be posted to follow with those aircraft up to Cold Lake. So moving up to, as my mother used to say to all her friends when we were being transferred, she was saying to all her friends, we're going to live with the Eskimos up in the igloos and stuff like that. Cold Lake was a very, kind of a very isolated place. It was a great experience. I think we all went there figuring we were going to hate it. And within the first few months, we, we loved the, the place because just the pristine, the nature, the wilderness, the... Uh, you know, and things that we'd never done before, such as camping out in the wilderness. Camping in Europe is basically you're going to the same village that you lived in, only it's now trailers instead of houses. But camping up in the cold lake uh, wilderness of northern Alberta is basically, yeah, you're in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a neat experience, a very neat experience up there. And, you know, up in cold, cold Lake had a station band. So as soon as we got there and I went to school... I was enrolled in the in the school band. I was in, you know, joined the station band. So, you know, at that age, you really still aren't thinking about what you want to do for the rest of your life. But, you know, trying to come to grips with the idea that this is something I love so much that maybe this is what I would love to do. This I couldn't see myself doing anything else. I mean, I was an avid model builder. I loved to buy these model kits, and I would build model kits because my father would 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 come in. And he would explain to me all the systems that work. So any model that I built, he would explain to me about the engines, about the wings, about how all this works. So I kept that alive there. But the thought at that point hadn't occurred to me about wanting to be a pilot or... I was at that point really still mostly enamored with making music. And I enjoyed it. I mean, I liked the fact that every time you went out to play, you were kind of the center of attention. I lived for attention. I lived for the applause. And how, like, remote was this in in north alberta was it like was there like nothing for miles around was it like a really long way to get to shops did you well, the, have to be like self-sufficient and 
build shelters and things that a wood are, you know? No, no. Well, uh, yeah, one would think so, but no, it, it was a, it was an Air Force base, so it was a fully outfitted, self-contained oh, right, right. base. So there were shops and everything on the base. Right next to us was a little village called Medley. A few kilometers down the road was the actual town of Cold Lake. We weren't quite Fort McMurray. We weren't up on the Yukon border. We were far enough north that if you wanted to go to a large city, you had to travel two and a half, three hours uh, to get to Edmonton uh, for, for any, if you wanted any specialty shops or that. What was interesting in Cold Lake though is that you were far enough north that winters were, were very long. We were so close to that area where in the wintertime you would have a very short period of daylight. So you'd only have from probably around 11 till 2, you would have daylight. The rest of the time it would be dark, it would be night. Uh, conversely, of course, in the summers, it was wonderful because uh, 11 at, uh, at night till about 2 or 3 in the morning, it would be dark. But the rest of the time, it was full full daylight. So you had huge long days in the summer. But no, we weren't. The, the biggest issue we had, and I think that was the biggest uh, problem we had, was the fact that in the winter, it got cold. Cold Lake is very aptly named. It is a very cold area. I do recall, I remember sitting at the breakfast table in the morning, getting ready to go to school and listening to the radio, the local radio station on the airbase. And I remember the announcer saying, um, it's minus 65 uh, today. Oh, okay. Just please make sure that uh, you remember that exposed skin will freeze in you know less than a minute. Make sure you dress properly. <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah. The, my father had on his car, he had a battery warmer. So he had this electric blanket wrapped around his battery. And he also had a block heater for the engine, both plugged in every time at night, just to get the car to start. And I remember going to school in the morning and as we were driving down the road, as the car sat overnight, the tire would would flatten on the bottoms. The tires would flatten. So as you're driving, you get this thud, 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 <laughs> thud, thud, because the tires had gotten flat overnight. It was quite the experience. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, summers were magnificent. I remember going fishing with my father in a boat on a lake out there. You didn't need a fish finder. You could look over the side of the boat, 20 feet down to the bottom of the lake and see the fish swimming. The water was that clear. I mean, you could literally take a cup and dip it in the water and drink it. It was just the, the air. I, I remember so much about how fresh and clean and everything, you know, just pristine everything was, untouched. It was a real eye-opener when we moved to Ontario. Did you move to Belleville next? Yes. Uh, so my father was finally transferred to uh, Trenton, CFB Trenton. Uh, where he was put in charge of the, at that time, we were they were flying Boeing 707s and the Hercules uh, freighter aircraft. Um, and so he was in charge of those uh, in his last few years of retirement. So we decided to, rather than live in the town of Trenton, which is part of the air, right beside the air base, uh, we moved down the road to Belleville. Basically, that's where I did my high school and also began to uh, switch to the idea of maybe wanting to fly as opposed to as a career because it was at Belleville that I began to really take an interest in, in aviation and flying. Uh, I, uh, there was a, a small flying club at the local airport and I became fascinated with the idea of maybe wanting to, uh, to fly an airplane. My music teacher actually served with the RAF. He was from Manchester and was now living in Canada teaching high school music. I remember 
uh, having a conversation with him. And he had told me that not only does he fly, but he also designs and builds his own airplanes. He's a home airplane builder. So he invited me to his house. I went there, bicycled there actually. I mean, I just jumped on my bike, ran to his house and in his garage, spent hours actually with him looking at all this welded tubing and fabric covering and stuff like that. So after he finished his latest design, he invited me to join him in a flight. Terrifying. So this had been the... Yes, this has been the first time, the first time I'd ever flown in a small airplane. Up until that time, I'd flown quite a bit. When we when we were transferred back to Canada from Germany, every year we would jump on a service, uh, an Air Force flight back over to Europe. So I would always spend Christmas with my grandparents. We would always be going back over. I did a lot of flying on Boeing 707s and Hercules aircraft. Uh, but this was my first time flying in a very small two-seater aircraft with fabric covering and welded tubing and a little four-cylinder engine on the front. That hooked me that day. I mean, he let me operate the controls. Uh, we did a few turns and banks. We came in for the landing. And I got home, and the first thing I said when I got home is, I want to be a pilot. And so that was the reason why, when you left school, you joined the Air Force. And also because your parents had been in it. My father had, had, had said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, of course, I'm going to join the Air Force. But I said, I, I don't want to fix the airplanes. He was kind of hoping that I would uh, become an aircraft mechanic like him. Um, I think both my parents were a little nervous about me flying aircraft because I think they were afraid of accidents, crashes, and that kind of stuff. But I told him, I said, no, I want to, uh, I want to become an Air Force pilot. I want to learn to fly the jets. I want to learn to, to all the big transports. So we went to recruiting and I went in to see the recruiter and I barely got the words, you know, pilot off my lips. And the recruiter shook his head and said, no, I'm sorry, you can't, you won't qualify. And I said, why? And at the, at the time, you needed 2020 uncorrected vision to be an Air Force pilot. So as soon as he saw my glasses, he, he just said, no. And then he started giving me a list of other things. I couldn't be a flight engineer. I couldn't be anybody as air crew. I couldn't, not only could I not be a pilot, I couldn't be a navigator, uh, flight engineer, anything like that. Anything that you were inside the airplane was operating, you needed to have that medical category. And so then I, I uh, asked the recruiter, I said, do we have, what, what kind of positions are there in the music branch? Are there anything available for euphonium and tuba? I remember the expression on my father's face, him rolling his eyes going, oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, my parents, to be honest, my parents were very supportive of me. However, they always looked upon music as something that would just be a hobby. My mother always used to say, she always told me that I would end up sitting with my accordion on a street corner begging for change. So back to the recruiting idea. So the recruiter did say, well, there are some positions available for tuba. Uh, by then, I had already quite a bit of experience playing with the station bands. So playing with these uh, station bands, of course, they're volunteer bands, but you're still issued with a uniform. You still perform during various events. Um, the professional military bands generally are allocated for for special events, ceremonies and, and, and special uh, things. But every band had a volunteer station band made up of a mixture of, of uh, military personnel and civilian personnel or, or 
Um, you were issued with a uniform, you were taught basic drill, you were taught how to march and, and, and stuff like that. And you'd participate in parades, change of command parades. All I would be doing was making it official, right? I would just be going from playing in a volunteer uh, station band and now getting paid to play in one of the professional military bands. Um, so we set up an audition. I had to go to Kingston, Ontario to the Signal Corps. At the time, they actually needed players. So because I already had marching experience and that with the station band, I didn't have to go to basic training. I was given a direct entry. Unfortunately, very shortly after getting um, uh, my position with the, with the band, an announcement came down from the higher-ups that a decision was made to cut the bands back to three bands. So we went from eight bands down to three. So I remember going to Kingston, getting my release forms processed, and I walked out of the door of the uh, Vimy band room and went down the street and walked into the uh, Queen's University. There would literally be, you could literally name your school and name your job and even name your salary and walk in the door. If you have a bachelor of music degree, you're guaranteed to get a teaching job. And I went four years of, um, of studying music uh, at Queen's University. You know, I, I succeeded in going through four years of study. At the same time, it's amazing because I would still, in the summers, I would still come back home and I would play with the station band. I would still play with the uh, the, the military uh, volunteer band on the air base. I, I mean, I remember uh, being out on a parade square during a, a change of command parade, and we were all standing at attention, and the... Um, the officers, the, the general or colonel, were about to come over to start reviewing the, uh, the troops. So we're playing away and a gust of wind came along and one of the trombone players, we'll always blame the trombones, his music, his march card blew off of his lyre. And I didn't really notice what happened. I was looking, playing my horn and looking at the conductor who the bandmaster and the, you could see the blood drain from his face. As he looked off to the side, you could see the trombone player chasing his music across the parade <laughs> square, trying to step on it as he's going along, completely breaking all military protocol. The, you know, the whole ceremony was done. Well, that, that's nothing compared to the helicopter incident. Um, we had a... Uh, search and rescue squadron which was based on Trenton as well and they used to use those giant Sea King helicopters for search and rescue and uh, there was a change of command for the colonel that was in charge of that squadron. The plan was to have during the ceremony to have this big Sea King helicopter come into the reviewing stand hover and do like a little bow to the reviewing stand and then and then hover away. So we're sitting there playing and this helicopter approaches the stand and then you can see this wall of dust and debris coming towards us. And literally it was as it, it was as though somebody just turned the volume knob off. The whole band just wiped clean. All the music stands and all the music just whoosh gone. And you know, a few players playing, but we're sitting there and all of a sudden there's no music anymore. And I've got sand all over the place and and so we ended up having to go and chase music and sheet music all over the tarmac. Um, it was one of those moments where you think, wow, that's that would look good in a movie. I, <laughs> in a comedy movie. Yeah, exactly. Just a picture of the band <laughs> sitting there. And then in, in a second, everything just wiped, whoosh, wiped clean right off the front of the band. 
if I can survive a helicopter blowing music off my stand, I think I can make it as a musician. <laughs> so you went through um, Queens doing a um, music degree. What did you do after that? What happened next? Well, that was uh, now I had to start paying for my music degree. Uh, I had a $40,000 student loan to pay off. Yeah, uh, and back in those days, that was 1992 when I graduated. So back in those days, that was at around 11 or 12% interest. Interest rates were, were, were exorbitantly high at that point. So I began to work. Um, I realized that um, I needed to, uh, to work. So uh, the first thing I did was move back home so I could live cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Exactly. Um, I began uh, teaching private music lessons at a couple of the local music stores. Again, playing in the local community bands. We In Belleville, there was a brass band and the municipal band, so I was playing in both groups. And then I, of course, applied for the Hastings County School Board for a position as a teacher. That was around the same time that we started to see the recession beginning to start, where the economy started taking a, a downward turn, which, of course, in 1998 became a complete flop. And the all the teachers who were supposed to retire and open up all these jobs had decided that retirement wasn't uh, a viable thing. So they decided to hold on to their jobs. So now the teaching positions were becoming very few. The other thing was is within a couple of years, uh, a change had been made in policy through the uh, teachers union that all music teachers had to have a teaching certificate. They couldn't just have their bachelor's degree in music. So I continued to teach privately. I was very lucky to get a temporary position at a uh, elementary school up in the little town of Tweed, Ontario, just north of Belleville, which actually was quite a good job. I was uh, into two years doing that. But uh, another fatal blow in terms of the teaching profession was that around that time, which I think was around 94, 95, in, at least in, uh, they began to remove music from the schools. They no longer wanted to spend money teaching music in schools. So after two years of teaching elementary music at Tweed, the program was canceled. The bass trombone player with the brass band in Belleville was also the music teacher at a private school, Albert College, and uh, he gave me a job. Uh, I was hired to be the brass teacher at Albert College, which I did for a number of years. And at that time, too, a position became available with the Belleville Municipal Band. They decided to give me a chance to conduct the group. Uh, while I was still in university, the conductor of the Belleville Brass Band retired and I was invited to take over that band. I they didn't even audition. They just asked me to take over the group. So I, I had already been conducting the brass band for a little while so that when the municipal band position became open, I guess the reputation of my work with the brass band was what enticed them to select me over other people to run the municipal band. Two bands that I was conducting, both of them paying reasonably good. I mean, a few, you know, few hundred dollars out of that every month. Uh, and at the time, I was teaching uh, private lessons. At, at the peak, I was actually doing really quite well. At the very peak, I, I had something like 20, 25 students a week. Very much at the verge of being able to say to my parents, I told you so. <laughs> 
1998 was the start of the, one of the worst recessions we've seen. And the companies such as Nortel folded and closed down, much like what's happening with General Motors here in Oshawa. People just let, were leaving in droves. So private lessons uh, dried up. The bands could no longer afford to pay me. It leads to the bus driving, I guess. My best friend in high school, his father owned a food distribution warehouse, a wholesale warehouse, to pick up some extra work and make some extra money, as all musicians have to do. He gave me a job driving the delivery trucks, delivering food to restaurants and uh, businesses all over the Hastings County area. So that went from just a temporary job to becoming my regular day job and music was now starting to become something I just did on the side. It got to the point where I actually had to move. So I started with Coburg, but eventually, and that it was actually while I was in Coburg that I was introduced to the uh, Whitby Brass Band because I would be driving by anyway. So I, I started to commute from Coburg into Whitby. That was the connection that put me where I am today through a, a gentleman by the name of Alan Black, who at that time was principal cornet for the Whitby Brass Band. You've done various kinds of bus driving. You've done school runs, coach tours, and now you're doing local services. So what's the funniest story that springs to mind about what people have done on the buses? Um, I mean, I, I switched from truck driving to bus driving uh, early on because I liked the idea. The school buses, really, there's not a lot of funny stories with school buses. <laughs> it's only because um, school busing is sort of a rite of passage. I looked upon it as a rite of passage. I had to drive school bus to get my B license so that I could drive buses. Uh, I did a lot of years of motor coach, highway coach driving. Every trip was an adventure. Every trip there was something. But there's a few things that do stand out in mind. I, I mean, some of the adventure, adventures with, with, with motor coach driving involved getting across the border. There were a lot of trips which were cross-border into the United States. On many occasions, um, we would get to the border and there would invariably be a passenger or two that had something wrong with their documentation. The you know passport wasn't proper or they didn't have uh, their, their declaration forms filled out or, or the like. I know one incident where we had a passenger who, in his haste to leave his house to drive to where the bus was going to be departing, didn't check to see the passport that he grabbed out of the drawer. And when we when we arrived at the Buffalo border, he had his wife's passport. Yeah. He had to uh, be left behind. We had to drag out his suitcases and he had to be left behind at the border as the trip continued on. One incident, which is interesting, in the United States, as opposed to Canada, uh, when you tour a major city, you generally cannot do the tour yourself. You either charter a tour guide to come on your bus or the um, the passengers have to get onto one of these little double-decker open-air tour buses and ride around on that. New York City trips were my favorite. A lot of times we would do the exact same tour with different tour guides. It would, I, I, I knew the route by heart. I knew where around the city to drive because that's where the tour guide wanted us to go. But there were a couple times I'd be going along thinking, I'm listening to the, to the next guide and I'm thinking, that's not what the previous guy said about this, this site. I realized, <laughs> you're just making this up. That can't be the right. One tour, we got there and the tour guide didn't show up. And we waited, but the group had to be at a show later on in Broadway. So I said, don't worry, guys. I've done this so much that 
I can just do the tour. I grabbed the microphone that's on the dash by the dashboard. I said, oh, don't worry, I'll do this tour. We, we won't be late. It's okay, I've done this enough times I know. I spent 40 minutes driving around New York City making things up. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I had stories about this large fenced-in area, which I said was a giant butterfly conservatory. And, uh, and and this other place where, you know, the first brew of beer was brewed or something like that. And uh, oh, some great stories. It was wonderful. I mean, there's a few things I could I, I remembered. But if I didn't remember, I just made it up as I went along. I actually I actually received quite a good tip at the end. I mean, they, they, they were more amused by my stories than, they, <laughs> than, than really what was going on outside. So I love the trips because when you're doing these tours, you get to go into all the events that everybody else is going to. So if you're taking them to a show, you get to go in the show. If you're going into uh, some special event or something uh, that you want to see, the driver gets to go in for free because you've brought the customers to them. Restaurants are free. Everything's free. So it was kind of like every trip, I was the tourist as much as I was the driver. The only difference was I had the best view out the front of the bus, right? So uh, yeah, it was it was quite a great career. It was it, actually, it was something that... Again, I was trying to weigh, you know, by the time I ended my career as a coach driver, I was third from the top of seniority. So basically, myself and the other two drivers above me, any any trip work that came in, we had the, the pick of whatever was there. By that time, I could pick and choose whatever work I wanted to do. And that meant being away a lot. The problem with that is that it, it interfered with a lot of what I was doing musically wise. There were times where I would miss a whole month of band rehearsals or miss a concert or miss a parade or a performance. So, and I decided, no, I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to live out of a hotel room the rest of my life. That's where the decision was made back in 2000 and 2012. I made the decision to switch to transit bus driving, city bus driving. You had day work. It was Monday to Friday. And basically you were home every night. You weren't out on the road, right? So you, I, I became a much more sedentary, much more home person after that. So you've talked quite a bit about flying. you now got a, a Cherokee light aircraft. How did you actually get into taking lessons to become a pilot and uh, learning all that? Well, after I graduated from university, the, uh, the first, those first years from, 92, from 1992 to 1998 were halcyon years. The money was flowing in. I was living with my parents, so I had literally no expenses. Sometimes I, I, I like to say that my parents didn't want me to get involved in music. They certainly supported me when I had made that decision. Um, I decided to resume where I left off with the flying training. I had already quite a bit of experience, but I hadn't actually soloed. So I just went back to the flying club in Belleville at the little Belleville airport. And within the, my first year, I had received my private pilot's license. I mean, there was a lot of talk that maybe an airline career could be in the works. So I decided to continue going, mainly because even as a hobby, I was so interested in flying and so taken by flying that I just wanted to keep learning more about it. And I wanted to learn more. So I continued on to get my uh, commercial pilot's license uh, and then went and did some training for seaplane, the planes for flying, either a flying boat or a plane on floats, with the idea that, hey, maybe I could pick up some side work instead of... Uh, uh, in the summers, especially when most music lessons ended and the school stopped, I had this idea that I would go in the summers up north and fly bush planes. 
by the time I had done enough training to be able to get all the ratings to start working me towards an airline career, that's when the recession hit and money dried up. But having to train and pay for out of pocket was becoming very expensive. It's, it's incredibly expensive today. But even then, at that time, I was paying $45 an hour. And this is in the 90s, mid-90s, $45 an hour to rent the airplane and then another $20 an hour for the instructor to instruct me. Once I received my commercial license in a single-engined aircraft, the next stage was to now train in a twin-engine airplane. Well, a twin-engine airplane was now going to be literally double the cost. After that, I would have to train to get my rating to fly jet engines. Well, to fly a jet is going to be even more expensive. We're talking on the order of tens of thousands of dollars. I didn't have the money. So flying is one of those things that is, is addictive. Even at that point, once I, with my licenses, I would go up flying. And I mean addictive to the point that while I was, after I had landed and I was putting the airplane away, I was already trying to think of when was the next time I could go again. When was the next time I could go? For many, many years, I would rent. You can actually rent aircraft just as you can rent a car. Um, you have to go to the flying club or to the uh, flying school that has aircraft for rent. You have to go up with an instructor and show that you're able to competently fly the aircraft. But after that, so a lot of years I would rent and I would take people up for rides and plan trips to fly. Uh, I mean, the crowning achievement for me in getting my pilot's license was taking my father up for a flight. Uh, my brother who had joined the army had uh, various postings throughout Europe and Canada. Uh, one, the, the first time that uh, I took my father up, my, my brother was stationed in Petawawa, which is up near Pembroke, Ontario. We had gone up to visit my brother and everyone talks about how general aviation, you know, the risk of flying in a single-engined airplane and and, you know, is it risky? And that it is actually really, really quite safe. In all the years that I've been flying, I've only ever had one incident that I could even consider a close call. And that was that very first flight. When we landed and we visited my brother on the return flight home, I decided to top up the fuel tanks and I missed one crucial step, which was after you refill fuel tanks, you should always wait 15 minutes, and then we have a little tester that we test the fuel at the bottom of the tank. We drain a little bit of fuel, and you test to make sure that there's no water in the fuel, because water could cause the engine to quit. I was busy talking with my brother and talking with my father, and we loaded the luggage into the airplane, and I started the aircraft up, and there was enough fuel in the line before the water got there for me to test run the engine, make sure the engine was all warmed up and going. And I actually lined up on the runway and started the takeoff roll. And we were just starting to lift off from the runway and the engine stopped running. Oh no. My training, of course, when you train as a pilot, even just as a, as a recreational license, that is one of the first things you're drilled into your head is fly the airplane, try to do whatever you can. So we're climbing out from the runway but there's still a lot of runway ahead of me. When the engine quit, I realized, okay, I can just land this airplane back on the runway and come to a stop. However, before I could go through the whole procedure of checking the engine and shutting it down, my father, who had been retired for many, many years, just jumped in and ran through the checking procedure for me while I was doing that. I was amazed at his remembering how to do everything. It was, it was astounding. And I landed yeah. the plane back on the runway and we came to a stop. 
And I, I said, I'm so sorry. He said, you didn't check the fuel, did you? And I said, no. He says, well, let's push it back to the, <laughs> we had to push it all the way down the taxiway back to the, to the thing where I had to dump the fuel. And I checked the fuel, drained the water, got the engine to restart, and away we went. The only issue with renting, of course, is the problem that sometimes if you want to go flying, you look up in the air and go, it's a beautiful day. Let's go flying. And I call the rental company and, oh, I'm sorry, all the aircraft are already rented. So after a while, there was this idea that I'm making enough money now, especially after the money I made through the charter driving and now with transit. End of 2013, I decided I'd like to start looking to own one. So I... Uh, was looking through the want ads. I, I get a pilot's magazine and, and saw an aircraft for sale and went through the whole procedure of ownership, which is, entails a lot of paperwork. And I also joined the fray of those people who have a very expensive hobby. And what's your favorite flight that you've done? My favorite flight? Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana for the NABA festivals. Uh, U.S. border crossings with cars or buses, and even with airlines, is a completely different experience when you're flying a small general aviation airplane. But you land at the Erie, Ottawa airport in uh, in um, in uh, Ohio, and it was hilarious. I, I I landed at the airport, and you taxied over to a looked like just a large trailer, 20 foot camping trailer but it had a U.S. Customs sticker stamped on the side of it. So you taxi to this trailer parked by the apron and you shut the airplane down and this customs agent walked out and you know, how y'all doing? <laughs> and uh, what do you got? Let's have a look at what's inside. So the, the procedure is whenever you get up to the customs in a small plane, you don't get out of your airplane. You can unlock the door, but you don't get out. The customs guy comes over, you, hand, you open the door, you hand him your passports, and then he takes a look inside the plane. Then he'll allow you to step out of the airplane and he'll take a look inside. So um, this fellow, how y'all doing? Uh, good to see you. Where are you off to? And I told him what we're doing. Oh, you're going to a brass band thing. What happens if you guys win? I said, well, we take the trophy home with us. He goes, oh, God, I, I don't know if I should let you guys in then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then he says, he goes, okay, well, he says, well, you know what? He says, I just want to do, let's do one bag inspection. And I said, fine, let's do that. Let's do a bag inspection. He says, just grab me one of the bags in the back of the plane. So I'm undoing the safety net and I'm trying to dig out a bag from the from behind the back seats. And he's saying, oh, you, you don't have to dig around. Just, just give me the first one you got. He says, preferably the one without the drugs in it. <laughs> <laughs> Great fella. And then, you know, I mean, he just looked inside the bag, goes, yeah, everything looks good. He says, you guys have a nice trip. Hope you win your competition. See you later. And uh, fire up the engine, get back out on the runway, and continue on to Fort Wayne. Wonderful trip. Wonderful trip. Flying in the U.S. is actually quite nice because there are so many little airports everywhere that if you decide you want to stop in for a break or you want to have a, a bite to eat or something, you can just drop down in one of these little airports. And there's generally somebody there that'll either take you over to a restaurant or even loan you their car to go. I've, I've had some people to say, here's my keys. Just, you know, bring it back when you're done. Wow. I mean, of course, you're not going to steal their car. They've got your airplane. What would you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> I believe parts of your house are styled on like the 1940s era. Could you describe it for us and tell us why you like that style? Well, actually, uh, my house, if you walk in the door, it's actually a little more closer to the Art Deco times of the late 20s and 30s. I've always been fascinated with that style. I think it has to do with the fact that uh, my grandparents, my grandmother's house, 
people sometimes they just don't change anything. And my my grandmother was one of those persons who everything in her house was what she had when she was a younger married woman but before my grandfather died. And she had not changed much of anything. As a matter of fact, I even remember my parents talking about every time we went to visit grandmother, we were going in the time machine because we would go into the house and we would go back in time. And I just, I really did fall in love with that style. I loved it. I think it began with also with the clothing. I, I always loved the look of the three-piece suit with the the waistcoat and the, the, the watch chains and, and, and the bow ties and the top hats and stuff like that. I just loved the look. So uh, my parents inherited some of the furniture that she had in later years in 2013 when my father passed away basically all of the furniture in the house the discussion came it came down to both my brother and I as to what we were to do with all of the household furnishings and the like my brother wanted none of it he likes the modern styles he likes IKEA and he likes all those things so he said he wanted none of it and I looked at it and said I gotta have the, this is not only is it the style and the appearance of things that I like, it's also memories of growing up, memories of, of, of home. At that time, I was living in a townhouse, so I actually decided uh, this isn't going to work in a townhouse. So I purchased the house that I have. And I wanted, if I was going to have old-fashioned furniture, I needed a, the, the style of house to match it. So I bought a century home took me a while. I actually had to look for a lot of houses. I had to look through a lot of old houses because a lot of people buy these old houses. They gut them and they do them all modern on the inside. So I f eventually finally found a house in which it was still the original plaster walls and the old trim and molding and hardwood floors. And I thought this is the place. So I decided I bought the house, moved everything in. And yeah, you walk through the door and you're, as my parents used to say about my grandmother, we're in the time machine. <laughs> like the, uh, I have a, a Model 20 Victrola cabinet model gramophone uh, that my grandmother used to play and she would play records on it. And so it worked. And so it still works. I still do use it occasionally. You know, I have relatively large collection of mechanical clocks, including a cuckoo clock from the House of Thousand Clocks. And I actually do enjoy the style. I mean, we all have our idiosyncrasies and everybody likes to do something that's a little outside the ordinary. So on every day, uh, my regular wear, when I go out, the, out of the house, I generally dress, I look like somebody that's just come out of a time machine from either the Edwardian era or the, uh, you know, the, just, just afterwards. I, I, I usually wear vests, uh, knitted vests or waistcoats and uh, I, I have my pocket watches and I have a good collection. I've got Homburgs and top hats. Um, I had a bowler hat, but I really didn't like the way I look in a bowler. I look too much like um, Oliver Hardy with a uh, <laughs> bowler hat. So yeah, so I mean, I just, I love the lifestyle. Call into your German heritage. You've set up a small German Oompa band where you play the sousaphone. What's the name of your band? Uh, we're called Beer Fest Music. I actually wanted to call it Jerry and the Sauerkrauts, <laughs> but I got vetoed on that. Um, I don't actually play sousaphone. We have a tuba player in there. I play accordion. It is one of the, it, it, I, I believe it or not, you would think this impossible, but we have two, not one, but two accordion players. So myself and another fella, and we trade off. The nice thing about playing, having two accordions, I don't have to hire a lot of woodwind players. So one of us plays the melody on the accordion. The other player plays all the woodwind twiddly bits. Uh, then we have a drummer. We have a trumpet player, a flugelhorn player. 
And then we have um, a tuba player. The accordion, of all the instruments I've learned to play, the accordion is the only instrument that I had no cost to learn to play. But it is also the only instrument that makes me the most money. <laughs> it was put together for a, a little German restaurant in the town of Whitby, Ontario. Uh, and I met the restaurant owner and I said, I play the accordion. Let's do a trade. I'll come in and play some music in your restaurant if you'll give me a free beer and a free meal. So it worked wonderfully. And uh, the restaurant owner approached me one day. He'd like to do an Oktoberfest party in his restaurant. Would it be possible for me to put together a small ensemble? I didn't have any music, so all I did, I spent probably the better part of two weeks handwriting parts out for all the guys to play and made up a little book with about 20 different tunes. Of course, one good thing, one good turn leads to another, so there were patrons in the restaurant that night that were so enamored, it just so happened that uh, one of the fellas happened to be um, the president of the German club in Oshawa and decided they wanted to hire our band to play for their Oktoberfest at their German club, which meant I had to sit down and write another 20 tunes to try to fill out the book because we were going to be playing for something like four hours. So wow. I thought, oh gosh, we're going to need more music than this. Although, you know, the, sometimes if the, if, if the crowd gets drunk enough, you can go back to the beginning of the book. They won't know. They won't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing how this took off. I thought for sure... We would only just get the odd phone call for a, an Oktoberfest job or uh, the restaurant owner at the time. He called his, the restaurant's name was Wolfgang's on Brock, Brock Street. Uh, the last Sunday of every month, he wanted to have a little party with the band. So we would go to his uh, setup in the restaurant in the evening and play while the crowds enjoyed their meals and, you know, rock their beer steins back and forth. It was all the training I did and all the courses I took in university degree and all that. And I literally have come around full circle and I'm back to being in the very same type of ensemble I was when I was a little kid growing up in Germany. It's, it, it really is fascinating. I mean, I do a lot of other music stuff now. Well, not right now, but I do. I'm involved with a lot of other music uh, things. Um, but that little group... Uh, just takes me right back to the to, to my roots as a musician. I think that's all I've got to ask you for today, so thank you very much for talking to me. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. I'll play the listeners out with uh, Jerry and the Sauerkrauts. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic.